I'm Jason Van Metting. And I'm Ksenia Chmutana. Welcome to Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. Okay, hello everybody. Welcome back to Disasters Deconstructed. Hi, Ksenia. Hey, Jason. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm uh, really looking forward to the next five weeks. We're getting to discuss some really great topics connected to some of these groups and individuals that are often referred to as vulnerable. Um, And uh, as you know, we've started to unpack this season why that sort of framing vulnerable or marginalized or at risk can be problematic. So the next five weeks is a really great opportunity for us to talk to some people who are working with these individuals and groups that we so often um, speak about in this way and to discuss some of the issues with that and how we can tell better stories that are more reflective of reality. Yeah, I think it's great that we get a chance to actually unpack this a little bit further because, of course, we started talking about marginalization and vulnerability last season, and then we talked a little bit about it um, earlier this season with Darian, for example, when we were Mm. talking about LGBTQI. Um, But there is so much more to unpack. Well, and remember, Jason, you know, I was kind of moaning to you about my dilemma, my question of role models, because I was asked recently who my female role model is, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I kind of I keep thinking about it. I've been thinking about it for weeks now. I think it kind of feeds into this narrative of vulnerability and marginalization and somehow the, the, the whole framing of role models, particularly female role models, and how we're actually not doing ourselves maybe favors by having them, you know, by kind of talking to about them in a way that we talk about them. Um, so, you know, um, well, keep keep kind of pontificating here but it was just really kind of weird because uh, last week in the guardian there was this article called um fighting the tyranny of nice of niceness why we need difficult women mm-hmm. um and of course you know like being difficult woman <laughs> is not a compliment <laughs> talking from the experience but anyhow so um the journalist who wrote it helen lewis she made like such a good point about role models and she kind of says that the idea of role models is not necessarily a bad one, but the way they're used in feminism can dilute a radical political movement into feel-good inspirational porn. Mm-hmm. And I think it's when we talk about any of the kind of vulnerable population, for choice of a better word, it is very often that we do that, right? We either go to a really feel-bad situation or like this feel-good inspirational kind of porn, right? As she puts it. Yeah, And we very often don't tell, not even the whole story, we don't tell like even a quarter of the story behind this, well, in this case, women that's supposed to inspire us. Um, and yeah, for anyone who's kind of interested in this, I would really suggest going and reading that article. It really made me think about the narrative even further. But yeah, anyway. Before we go on, I think that the listeners are probably interested to know who you selected as your female role model if you did indeed choose one. <laughs> oh man seriously it it was it was an absolute struggle like i i really really find found it difficult to actually engage with the task you know i i 
my kind of instinct, natural instinct was just to kind of go for my mom, right? Yeah. And because she is great and she she did absolutely everything. And but there are certain things that I don't want to do, right? And maybe you know she didn't have certain choices that I have, but you know, in, in a way that role model, I feel that as a daughter I should have a different life path, and and I do, mm-hmm. you know. And she kind of helped me to do that. Mm-hmm. And then I was kind of thinking about. Valentina Tereshkova, you know, the first woman in space, because, mm-hmm. well, as you know, <laughs> I want to be a cosmonaut when I grow up. Yes. Uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, again, like, she's this kind of idolized woman. Maybe she was, like, the most horrible person in real life. I've got no idea, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that story isn't told. And then equally, there are women who I absolutely admire um, personally, but their careers are kind of not great, you know, because they had to make, again, certain choices and sacrifices. So I I really, really struggled. So in the end, after pontificating and talking to you and Tom and kind of Lee, you know, quite quite a few people, quite a few friends about it, I have decided to go for RuPaul because, and I don't know, have you watched um, Drag Race? RuPaul's Drag Race? No? Oh, it's great. It's, it's, It's the best show ever. Because, you know, for me... Um, again, I don't, I don't know him as a person, but he kind of stands for giving voices to those who really need voices, right? He kind of really brought to perspective the whole idea of drag queens. And then, mm-hmm. you know, he really shows their talent and their humor and also their vulnerabilities and kind of emotions in a way that haven't really been kind of shown before. Um but also what I really like is that he um, he doesn't really care about the personal pronouns mm. because, for you know, it's not about binary. It's not about kind of being a man or a woman. Um, and I absolutely love uh, his catchphrase. So if you watch the show, he when, you know, when the task starts, he always says, gentlemen, start your engines and make the best woman win. Okay. And I think it's so, so good. And yeah. then there is another catchphrase, which I really like, uh, but I guess I'm not allowed to swear. Uh, so I'm not going to um, say it, but for those of you who watch the show, you'll know exactly what I mean. <laughs> oh, I need to check it out, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's that's the role model I go with, but, you know, with a lot of kind of ifs and um, asterisks as of how we talk about role models. Thank you for sharing. And... I think that's a good way to start this episode um, 12. And we're talking about gender with um, some amazing women who are working in this space and have a lot to share. I think it's going to be a bit of a longer episode than usual because we had a, a really great time recording and I don't want to cut any of it out. Well, today we have a really, really exciting group of guests for you. So we've got Sarah Brown, Alison Snedden, and Miriana Budimir, working, who are all working for Practical Action. And they have done some amazing work. Uh, they have co-authored some really, really important reports, such as Gender Transformative Early Warning Systems, Missing Voices, uh, and also Gender and Age Inequality of disaster risk and we will put the links to this report in our show notes so if you haven't seen this before please check them out so sarah allison and mirana welcome to disasters deconstructed thank you very much for having us welcome to you all um it's really great that we can delve a bit deeper into this subject today with you all and it comes up quite frequently of course in our podcast thus far 
but really looking forward to getting into more detail. So I wanted to start by asking you, Mariana, why should we actually care about gender in disasters? Uh, great question. Thank you for that, Jason. Uh, and thanks for having us. Um, so why should we care? Uh, the, the main point really is that gender affects uh, people's disaster, uh, how they experience disasters and the impacts they have from disasters. Um, there's a lot of literature, uh, research and anecdotal evidence clearly pointing to a gender difference in the way that people experience disasters and how um, they're impacted by them. For now, I'm just going to stick with talking about men and women, um, but we'll later explore kind of a less binary approach and nuances. Um, but for now, let's have a think about um, men and women. So the majority of studies most commonly find women and girls being worse affected by disasters in numerous ways compared to men. Um, however, there's much more nuance to this relationship. So a straightforward being a woman makes you more vulnerable and worse affected to by disasters than men. Um, the differential impacts of disaster context and event specific, and they're often driven by differential exposure and context specific inequalities. Um, the quote by the United Nations Disaster Risk Reduction Office um, is really useful here. So they say that disaster reinforces perpetuates and increases gender inequality, making a bad situation worse. Um, so maybe I'll give a couple of examples of how uh, gender affects us a disaster, some concrete things that people can get their heads around. So for example, um, there's a lot of studies showing that uh, women have higher mortality rates related to disasters than men. And this is um, often linked to the predominance of domestic and caring roles which restrict women to the home. Um, or traditional clothing, restricting their ability to move to escape, um, and also gender differences in the ability for uh, women and girls to swim and climb trees. Um, there's also gender-based violence in the aftermath of disasters, so where there is disrupted social systems and um, lacking protection, protection services, often um, girls and women are worse affected by gender-based violence um, in inadequately designed camps, um, early or forced marriage and sex trafficking, for example. And then we can think about kind of the longer term impact. So uh, children and particularly girls access to education is often disrupted um, after a disaster by the pressure to provide caring roles in the home after disasters, including greater workloads in gathering water and firewood, which are traditionally gendered household roles assigned to women and girls. Um, and these often put them at risk. Um, all of this kind of comes down to the root causes of why men and women experience disasters differently. And this can be found in examining how gender inequality, social marginalization can have an impact on vulnerability, exposure and capacity. Um, so, for example, it, uh, increased vulnerability to disasters. This is really around the less economic, political and cultural power that women and gender minorities have before an event. The, light, the greater their suffering during and after an event. Um, so, for example, gender norms, such as men being viewed as decision makers in a, in a household, um, gendered roles and gender-based violence can increase the vulnerability of women and gender minorities during a disaster. Um, so this can mean women are located in areas exposed to hazards or have restricted coping mechanisms um, to cope with what happens in the disaster. Um, women and marginalised gender groups are often also excluded from disastrous reduction policies, strategies and decision makers. So they um, have 
less participate less in DRR initiatives because of their domestic roles, their lack of autonomy, um, issues around mobility and social isolation and persecution. Um, and there's often some gendered assumptions in terms of um, men representing a household's interests as a whole. So there's less opportunity for women's um, needs to be addressed in preparedness plans even before a disaster occurs. Um, there's also kind of inequality in the access and uh, access to resources and information. So, for example, gender inequality in education and literacy levels really affects the capacity and preferences in receiving, understanding, and then being able to act on information in a disaster situation. Um, and women's lower socioeconomic status often means that they may not have the resources to prepare and respond in any case, even if they have the right information. Um, we found in, in one of our studies in, in the early warning system um, and gender transformative um, early warning system piece that women there are differences in people's preferences and capacities to prepare and respond to disasters. So, for example, this gendered roles related to caregiving often mean the women have different needs in preparedness in response. So they might need more time to evacuate with children and to prepare the household um, and be able to get somewhere safe compared to men. Um, and this is also related to who has power over decision making. So groups with less power, which is often including women and gender minorities, lack the control over decision making in disaster situations because social norms prioritise male leadership. Um, and this lack of power and influence over their own ability to uh, take the decisions mean increases the gendered vulnerabilities to disasters. So one of the things we found in us in the early warning system study was that um, men's perception of risk meant that they decided to evacuate later than women. Um, and because of the gendered roles in how those decisions are made as a household, this placed women in a riskier situation than they would have preferred to be. Uh, and then they have less uh, capacity to cope. So for example, not being able to swim, wearing restrictive clothing, um, and therefore they were placed in a, a more vulnerable situation. So the, you know, why should we care about gender really comes down to being aware about this. It's really important to be aware of and acknowledge how these differences affect people's experience of disasters in order to ensure that everyone's needs are met before, during and after a disaster, rather than assuming everyone experiences them the same. Um, and to be able to, to do this, we need to uh, analyse and understand gender inequality in a given context on a, on a longer time scale and the ways in which gender norms, gendered roles, gendered power structures shape the families and the communities and the institutions in a given location. Uh, we need to proactively engage with women and girls, young adolescent mothers, gender minorities and other marginalised groups in, a, in disaster risk reduction planning and strategy to make sure their voices are heard. Um, and then lastly, we need to remember that women and gender minorities are not all equally and uniformly vulnerable and therefore an inclusive and intersectional perspective is really critical. We need to understand and consider how multiple intersecting marginalised identities of vulnerabilities can increase an individual's vulnerability in a disaster situation. And 
And so you've mentioned vulnerability quite a few times, and this is something that we've been um, unpacking in the first season, and we've talked a lot about this uh, from different perspectives in the second season. But I guess we all agree that vulnerability as as a concept, as a word, is is really quite problematic, right? Because we kind of assign the the weakness to a particular group of people or to a particular person. So, Alison, what are the problems with talking about women or treating women as vulnerable? Uh, Well, I think just first of all, to pick up on um, the last point that Mariana was making, um, the most obvious problem is that um, treating women as vulnerable homogenizes women. And it means that we're not Mm. thinking about the diversity between and across women that affects how they experience disasters. Um, so that has practical implications as well, where considerations of gender can come down to very tokenistic and ineffective actions. Um, so you'll see that a lot when you have situations of, um, say, having quotas of disaster management committee members who are women, for example. Um, and that kind of tokenism in its turn raises a couple of further problems. Um Firstly, that having a woman or even several women in the room doesn't mean that they're actively participating in or included in the the conversations and decisions. Mm. Um, And it also means that that our understanding of what effective representation is in that kind of decision-making space is is very limited. If we think that because an individual is a woman, she'll automatically be able to represent the interests of marginalised gender groups by virtue of being a woman and being present. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So when we think of women as this homogenous group we're ignoring all the intersecting factors which affect a person's resilience and affect their vulnerability so if you have for example a woman who is um, quite well educated she um, may be more likely to to have the skills and the confidence to participate and speak out but she might not have the understanding of diverse experiences of marginalization and of vulnerability um, that she would need to effectively represent and advocate for those Um, and then secondly when we're treating women as a vulnerable group, we're ignoring their capacities. And I know you guys have talked a lot about this on the podcast as yeah. well, the idea of capacities and, and working with capacities because they're something that, that can be strengthened. Um, so the capacities that women have to, to strengthen and enrich resilience are so important. And in the research that, the research that we've done in um, Nepal and Peru, uh, we found that in these contexts where there's a significant amount of male economic migration, uh, women are taking on the responsibilities and the challenges of leading their communities and preparing for and responding to early warnings. And they're doing it really well. Um, so women have been demonstrating so much valuable knowledge about their communities, about who lives there and what help they might need to evacuate, just as one example. And And that's obviously not to say that men don't have really valuable knowledge as well, but just to highlight that excluding the knowledge and the skills of half of any community can only weaken that community. Mm. And then I'd also say that treating women as vulnerable assumes by implication that men and boys are not vulnerable. And we know Mm. that men and boys do also experience gendered vulnerabilities, and they can often be related to the expectations um, of men, particularly in disaster situations, to take on high-risk responsibilities. Uh, So whether that's as um, as Mariana was mentioning earlier, not evacuating uh, early because the priority is to protect the home or uh, undertaking search and rescue or trying to provide for the family in a post-disaster setting in ways that can often expose them to violence. So these are very real vulnerabilities and ignoring them puts people at risk. Mm. There's also, I think, a real problem with equating the inclusion of women and girls in a list of vulnerable groups with actually considering those vulnerabilities in a meaningful way. Um, so I'm sure you'll have seen time and time again in sort of post-disaster needs assessments that are conducted by governments and aid agencies. You'll see a sentence that goes along the lines of 
XYZ people will be especially vulnerable. Um, yeah, yeah. So first of all, the I mean, you know, those lists are, they're not comprehensive and they often exclude marginalized communities who should definitely be there. Um, but secondly, there's nothing following those lists that demonstrates either an understanding of specifically how those groups will be particularly vulnerable or how the disaster response should reflect those vulnerabilities in its implementation. So identifying women as a vulnerable group isn't effectively linked to action which will address those gendered vulnerabilities, and it can actually be harmful by creating a sense that the box has been ticked. Um, and just finally, I think on, on that point, there's a risk that treating gendered vulnerability as the inherent vulnerability of this homogenous population of women can result in a perception that gendered vulnerabilities are inevitable, so that kind of societal lethargy can disincentivize the action that's needed to transform those systems which serve to perpetuate the gendered inequalities which cause those vulnerabilities. Um, so Mariana mentioned, um, just as an ex example, that there's a lot of evidence that rates of gender-based violence increase during a disaster. Uh, and if we're treating women as vulnerable and saying that as a group, women are vulnerable to gender-based violence in a disaster setting that's not addressing the root causes of that violence. And the root causes of that violence are not the vulnerability of women. Um, so in that sense, treating women as vulnerable can actually make them vulnerable, as well as exacerbating the vulnerabilities of other marginalized gender groups by excluding them from consideration in the first place. And, you know, I think you're raising so many important points there. And for me particularly, you know, every time I see that, um, as you mentioned, kind of seeing women and girls listed as vulnerable. Um, I want to kind of laugh and cry at the same time because very often these lists are created by men yeah. who have no idea about vulnerability, right? They, they don't understand what it means like to have a period or to wear a dress, right? Um, yeah. So, and tackling this, I don't even know where we start, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. And I think it's that sense of knowing that you have to acknowledge the vulnerability, but then not taking that extra step towards considering what it means and taking any kind of meaningful action. Mm. This is great stuff, Alison. I really um, think we don't consider deeply enough when we use um, terminology like vulnerability and we label people in that way. And I feel like that sort of, like I would, I would say sometimes we use vulnerability in a way that kind of naturalizes the systemic oppression that people are facing and fails to identify the cause of that vulnerability right so really glad you're bringing that up and yeah it's it's a wider problem like what what role do you think that the language that we use plays in sometimes obscuring the the real issue that people are facing and groups are facing especially with regards to the terminology around being vulnerable um, I think you're absolutely right. I think that language is so important because it, over time, I think it frames how we see things. And if we are we're using language like vulnerability without interrogating it in any way, then we're kind of we're giving ourselves a bit of a get out of jail free card almost in a way to just say yes, we've considered this. We know that they're vulnerable, um, and it it serves I think to really disempower, you know, huge huge numbers of, of people who have so much to offer to, to us as, as, a, as a community, um, as a professional community and within, within local communities as well, um, to just completely ignore all of the, the insight and the 
experience and the knowledge that people have because we see them as vulnerable and as needing help rather than being agents of change and being empowered actors in their own communities. the article that Laurie Peake wrote in, I guess it was in December, talking about vulnerability bearers, you know, rather yeah. than the vulnerable, you know, indicating that, you know, this, these, the vulnerability doesn't happen by chance. They're not just naturally vulnerable, right? The, these people are systemically oppressed and are bearing vulnerability that is often forced onto them, right? So. Absolutely. Vulnerability is a, it's a function of injustice. It's not, um, it's not an identity. Yeah. Um, so, Sarah, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, the way that we assume that when we talk about gender, we're, we're immediately um, referring to women. And of course, there's a reason for that. But do you think that sort of binary narrative that most discourses perpetuate is dangerous? When we think about gender, um, we're talking about a a range of different things that can unhelpfully get conflated. We're talking about gender roles, gender expression, sex characteristics, gender identity, femininity, masculinity, etc. What we're also talking about is power and patriarchy and the multiple ways in which a colonialist patriarchal agenda imposed and mandated binary sex or gender divisions in mm. ways which negatively impact on women, uh, cis or trans, on men, cis or trans, and on those whose identity does not fit within a tight gender binary. Regimented gender norms can negatively impact on people of all genders, though in most countries this impact is especially brutal on women and on people who are interpreted to fall outside of gendered expectations, including sexual and gender minorities and people who are intersex. Our work was um, was partly inspired by an awesome report um, by uh, Emily Dwyer and Lana Wolf from Edge Effect, uh, a report that they did called Down by the River, which looked at addressing the rights, needs and strengths of Fijian sexual and gender minorities in disaster risk reduction and humanitarian response. We adapted and updated a framework that they had developed that you'll see in our main gender transformative early warning system paper, um, outlining the distinction between gender unaware, gender aware, gender inclusive and gender transformative approaches. We wanted to make sure we were using a theoretical framework that in itself left no one behind, that recognised gender diversity. And if I read a bit the description of what we mean by gender unaware as, as one of those levels of, of a, a sort of the, the, the starting level um, often um, before you get towards gender aware, gender sensitive or gender transformative, the definition that we've used is... Um, there's limited consideration that people of different genders may have different roles, needs or capacities or acknowledgement of pre-existing power imbalances between people of different genders. Decisions, policies and practices are likely to be shaped by stereotyped and cisnormative assumptions that may exclude or disadvantage certain gender groups. Gender unaware approaches are likely to perpetuate and exacerbate gender inequalities. So even in our theoretical approach and even in our definitions of, of what it means to be gender unaware, 
we're taking an inclusive approach to what that means, an approach that goes beyond the question of whether or not you've counted men versus women. Um, and leaving no one behind is about having this more inclusive and nuanced approach to our work on gender. There's an awesome um, gender studies professor from Sussex University called Alison, I think it's pronounced Phipps, but apologies if I've got that wrong, uh, who's provi who um, has provided a, um, an, an awesome 101 to gender on her website, which I'd recommend people um, go take a look at. Maybe we can put a link um, under the podcast. Um, and that 101 to gender gives a, an up-to-date intersectional feminist 101 on gender with bite-sized modules on deconstructing gender, on universality and intersectionality, on reproducing gender and on gender power and violence. Having an intersectional approach is so important. Um, the term intersectionality, as, as I think has been mentioned before on, on your podcast, uh, uh, was coined by a black woman called Kimberle Crenshaw, who focused on the ways in which women were marginalized in discussions on race and the ways in which black women were marginalized in discussions on gender. Overt consideration of intersectionality um, uh, is really important, uh, as shown by our study and as uh, Alison and Mirana mentioned earlier, uh, women and other gender groups are not uniformly and uniquely vulnerable. Vulnerability is a product of intersecting identities, including gender identity, race, disability, class, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and other um, other characteristics. Um, in terms of intersectional approaches um, that explicitly make space for gender minorities, at the same time as doing this this study on gender transformative early warning system. Uh, I was involved in writing a paper on transgender inclusive sanitation in South Asia. Um, and although that was in a different thematic area, it provided quite a lot of cross-sectoral recommendations that would have relevance for disaster risk on making space for gender minorities within, uh, within programming interventions, uh, including uh, engaging with uh, trans people as partners at all stages across the initiative, recognizing uh, that the language of gender identity is not fixed and that it varies across cultures and importantly between generations um, and acknowledging that uh, gender minorities are not a single homogenous group but rather have diverse identities, histories, priorities. Um, I think there's a lot that can be learnt if we take an intersectional approach that, that can enrich and benefit is, us all. Uh, if we lead with open minds, with uh, empathy, and listen to diverse experiences. And this listening to diverse experiences was at the heart of what we wanted to achieve with our Missing Voices stories. We've talked about intersectionality quite a lot, and it, it's actually quite a difficult concept, right? And I, I think it, the word itself goes into a jargon jar that Jason and I um, are filling up really, really fast. Um, not many people actually understand what it means, what intersectionality means, and I've tried to explain it so many times, and I'm not sure I'm, I, I'm very good at explaining it. But in your report, um, Missing Voices, that you've just mentioned, 
you're talking about experiences of different marginalized gender groups. And you're talking about experiences from women who are elderly, who have disabilities, women who are single mothers and also transgender women, or women who are pregnant or who've just had babies. So, you know, all sorts of kind of women um, in in, in shape and forms. And we don't get to hear the stories, uh, well, pretty much ever. We don't get to hear them very often. So why have you chosen to focus on the story, Sarah? Can you give us a little bit more insight into this? Yeah, um, from quite a lot of our our recent work um, where we've considered um, gender or age inequality uh, of disaster risk, um, what we found is that when we've looked at mainstream data sets, they only give a partial perspective. Um, so, uh, and including our own data collection. So, uh, with the gender transformative early warning system study, we started off with some uh, fairly standard data collection approaches. Um, and when we were analysing the data that we got back from from a fairly standard uh, kind of you know one to one interviews and focus group discussions with random sampling, um, it was clear that there were missing experiences that we weren't hearing through those um, standard data collection approaches. Um, we decided that we needed to do something a lot more targeted, um, which is uh, where we came to the approach that we've called the missing voices approach. Uh, and this approach consists of identifying specific areas of marginalization in a given context. So um, uh, starting from an understanding of what are the lenses and dimensions of inequality and marginalization in a specific context. So, for example, in Nepal, um, widows are known to be marginalized and explicitly mm-hmm. targeting individuals uh, who share those characteristics, people who we might not otherwise hear from um, in our in our data collection. Um, for those specific groups, we identified intermediaries, so uh, support groups or local NGOs that have specific links and established credibility and trust with those specific types of minority women. Uh, and we reached out through those intermediaries. For those interviews, we prioritized telephone interviews at a time and location chosen by those women, um, which gave much greater control over privacy and confidentiality. And we found allowed for much more open, um, frank conversations um, on more sensitive uh, topics and for those women to um, uh, drive the conversation. We really wanted to keep the focus in the interviews quite open and we wanted to hear what were the issues that were of greatest importance to those individuals. What did they want to say? Um, Afterwards, we analysed those interviews for um, themes and policy implications, which were summarised in the main report. But Mm -hmm. we also wanted to make sure that we were documenting their words and their stories in long form, what they had to say in their own words. I love the narrative approach. You know, I really like that you've recorded the actual stories. I think it's just so, so interesting to hear their own words because we often um, misinterpret these words or use different words that they would never use, right? Because of our kind of bias and our privilege. So, Mirjana, for you, how should we talk about gender in disasters? Well, um, firstly, we should talk about it. So um, thanks for hosting us on the and <laughs> yeah. giving space to this topic. <laughs> Uh, it's great to hear that that gender is becoming um, more widely spoken about, particularly in the disasters um, field. Uh, we need to be talking about consistently and integrating it across the themes that we're working on, rather than thinking of it as a as an add on or a tick box box exercise. 
Um, and as Alison says, we need to really go beyond kind of the lip service of just listing people as vulnerable groups and and really actively engage with them and understand what they're going through um, and why they might be more vulnerable than others. Um, uh, and, you know, Sarah is talking about, you know, we need to talk about it in a way that's inclusive of diverse gender identities. So not thinking about gender as, as this binary men and women. Um, and we really need to be thinking about this and talking about it in a way that upholds the capacities, the skills and the knowledge of people um, of all genders and recognise how their inclusion um, strengthens and enriches resilience. Um, and finally, we really should be listening to them more than talking about them. Yeah, and we very often fail to do that, I think, as you know, academia as a whole, as researchers as a whole, we don't really want to listen. We just want to talk at people, unfortunately. Alison, so, you know, if I were to ask, you know, what would be the key, I don't know, two, three points that we really need to emphasize when we talk about gender, what would those be for you? Uh, right. So in, in terms of um, the things that we need to emphasize, thinking about kind of everything that we've been talking about today, obviously, I would really like to emphasize everything because I think it's all really important. <laughs> but I think uh, the key thing to emphasize um, would be the importance of intersectional and inclusive approaches to gender, which I think Sarah um, talked us through um, in a lot of depth. Uh, it's so important to recognize the diversity of gender and of vulnerability and to avoid that, that oversimplification and the generalizations, um, which we, we rely on for a reason. We rely on because, you know, there can be useful things to draw from generalizations, but they do serve to further marginalize people. Um, and I think there can be a tendency to deprioritize intersectional vulnerability in crisis. Things need to move so fast in an emergency, but crises are when it becomes even more important to meaningfully and practically consider diversity and intersectionality. And as Mariana was saying, to, to listen to people who are actually trying to tell us their experiences, because when we fail to do that, the consequences are so serious. So when it's the hardest to do is when it's the most important to do it. And then... I think additionally to what we've been talking about today, um, there are two other things that I think are, are really important to emphasize. Um, firstly, is the role of context-specific gender expertise, the importance of prioritizing and integrating that knowledge across you know, the different fields of research and implementation and policy. You know, there are a couple of ways in which that expertise can be neglected or misused. You know, whether we isolate gender expertise in its own little silo in a way where it becomes an optional extra or a nice to have or an add on to work rather, rather than actually being incorporated across work or whether we undervalue that expertise entirely. And we have people who are not experts in, gen in gender, um, but they're deemed to have sufficient knowledge to, you know, to tick that box and say, we've done it. It's fine. Um, and then the third point uh, I think is really important to emphasize is um, thinking about gender in the preparedness and deduction spaces, as well as in the humanitarian sp uh, sphere. So I think, Jens, Jason, at the beginning, you mentioned, you know, this topic of gender comes up a lot. We do have a real wealth of knowledge about the gendered impacts of disasters and the need to respond to those in the humanitarian field. But where we really need to see more emphasis is on transforming gender inequality through resilience and for resilience so that marginalized gender groups are actively participating in and represented in resilience building in the long term as well.
thank you so much for unpacking all this with us. You know, whilst I think gender has become more and more prominent in disaster studies, as you've highlighted as well, I, we are not talking about it enough. We're still kind of treating it a bit. Uh, I don't know, it's a side subject, I suppose. So thank you. Thank you for unpacking this. It's been absolutely fascinating. So today we've been talking with Sarah Brown, Alison Sneddon, and Mirianna Budimir from Practical Action. And I hope um, you've all enjoyed this as much as I did. It was great. Thank you. Thank you all for being with us. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you for having us. Just to remind all our listeners, um, as I've been asking recently, please do on um, Apple Podcasts, give us a rating and write a review. We really appreciate it. Um, we'll be back with you again next Monday and every Monday until um, please engage with us on Twitter and Instagram at Disasters Decon. Um, we really appreciate everyone who's been um, this community talking about how we deconstruct some of these difficult ideas in, in disaster studies. Senya, Jason, Allison, Sarah, and Mariana on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. Podcast.